Afghanistan is the Taliban about to take Lashkagar and control of Helmand. Syria Assad launches barrel bomb strikes in revenge for rebel successes. Russia reboots its armed forces, no junk and is all high tech. 2.3 million words about the Iraq war. They're queuing up to hear it in Edinburgh and the richest man in the army has died. Hello there, welcome to SITREP with me, Tim Cooper. In Afghanistan, Taliban fighters are advancing on the capital of Helmand province, Lashkagar. The Afghan army has beefed up its presence in the city. British forces once fought to save, after militants captured territory just a few miles away. Despite an increase in US airstrikes, the Taliban have also blown up bridges and repeatedly cut off the main highway. Around 30,000 people have been displaced in Helmand in recent weeks, with residents saying the city is practically besieged. I'm joined by military analyst Eric Grove, and as usual here in the studio, by our BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, let's come to you first. The stat goes as follows. Ten out of 14 districts in Helmand are effectively held by the Taliban. A disaster. It's not good, is it? Um, it? They may not actually be held. They are held temporarily or they're being fought over uh, explicitly. Probably eight out of those 14 are actually held. The important thing is the fact that you've seen Nawar district, which is the most important district because uh, the south of uh, Lashkigar. Um, if that succeeds, that they're defensive, by, they virtually own the capital in, in, and that is important not just uh, for the for, for the idea okay we're in charge but because there are so few resources that can actually get at it now afghan what's happened to the afghan army they lost the 20,000 casualties last year they probably lose more this year um 5,000 of them so far have been killed um the americans have put in the 10th mountain division which is now squatting in bastion um, they've given them close air support, which they were lacking before. But the um, uh, Taliban has introduced a new uh, a new battalion, about battalion size, which have effectively is just what what we would call special forces, taking a lot of their t- training from the Russians, from the Spetsnaz uh, uh, group as well. Uh, and so these are not just guys that are marching up with a uh, with a battered lorry. And blowing things up. This is a far more organised Taliban, which goes back to the original idea when Taliban was formed. Taliban means students, and they were students of every form of warfare. And this is what we've got now. It's a formidable force, and for the moment, um, nobody's quite sure with, Af- uh, with, with the Afghan army, and more importantly, the American support from it. Um, is going to be able to hold it. Mm. Professor Eric Grove, what does this say about the effectiveness of the international training mission? As Christopher said there, worries that it will have any effect on this advance from the Taliban. Well, I think the trainers are doing all right, but the problem is the Afghan army itself, which suffers from a great deal of corruption. A study recently said that, in fact, uh, many of the Afghan units were only uh, some 40% down because um, their officers had been taking the money for the 40% who weren't there and using it for their own devices. So we have another problem. It's the same as it has been in Iraq, really, that the local forces are not as efficient as they should be. And despite the best efforts of the trainers, and it'll be very interesting, you know, Chris has said about the Americans, 
how how proactive the Americans are going to be. They always say that they're just there for force protection, etc. One suspects that, that, that they will press the envelope a bit on that. But it all depends really on the effectiveness of the Afghan army. They've been mobilizing border guards who can't guard the border uh, to actually help them. And it's going to be a big test. And it'll be interesting to see, well, to say the least, interesting to see how well the Afghan, Afghan forces um, on the ground actually fight. This, um, I mentioned the, the 10th Mountain Division, the American 10th Mountain Division, which uh, is about battalion strength. So in American terms, maybe five, 550 people. Um, their job is not to go and fight Taliban, but there is something else that was going on here. Uh, America has virtually said, look, we'll not let Lash go or we'll not let Helmand go. And this is very important, but there is an American question here. Uh, on Tuesday, the 8th of November, America gets a new president, and the new president is the guy that's going to have it in his entry or her entry uh, of what goes on in Afghanistan. Yes, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Obama said Lash won't go, but he's on his way out. Very quickly, Christopher, Hillary or Donald, which way would they go? Uh, I think they would probably take it no further. Mm. Uh, to absolutely take it no further. There's nothing in what they've said that suggests that they, they're interested in Afghanistan. Right, let's move on now. And the news from Syria this week is that Aleppo is all but rubble. We're witnessing the biggest humanitarian crisis of the war since it began five long years ago. Fawaz Jerjez is Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics and joins us now on the line. Welcome. Um, President Assad's air forces, backed by Russian air forces and ground troops, appear really determined to bomb the rebel-held part of Aleppo to oblivion. Is it really that simplistic, though? Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, Aleppo is an existential side for the Assad regime. Uh, the idea or the way that Assad and uh, his allies view the Aleppo battle, uh, it is the most strategically important battle. If they win the fight in Aleppo, they basically win the war. And that's why Assad and his allies, particularly the uh, Iranians, Hezbollah and Russia, have invested considerable resources in trying to besiege the eastern part of the city. The eastern part of the city has about 250,000 uh, citizens. Uh, so far, it has succeeded. But the rebels, of course, are fighting back. And in the past few days, they have achieved some major gains, even though they have not basically broken, they have not succeeded in breaking the siege of the eastern part of Aleppo. So you have still committed rebels... An Af um, sorry, a Syrian army of Assad, very strongly supported by Russia. It looks as though we're grinding towards a stalemate that could last for months, if not years. I think this is the most important point to tell your listeners. I mean, time and again, we hear that the rebels are gaining some, I mean, making some major gains, that Assad uh, has made some major gains. The reality is you have a stalemate in Syria. This is a war of attrition. Um, everyone is losing in Syria, even though at certain points in the past five years and a half, you know, either the Assad regime or the rebels, uh, you know, have made some uh, uh, progress. The reality is everyone is losing in Syria, and the biggest loser in Syria are the Syrian people. This is the greatest humanitarian crisis since the end of World War II. Almost 300,000 Syrians have been killed. 50% of the Syrian people are refugees and uh, displaced people. 
it is catastrophe. And the reality is neither side is going to deliver, deliver a decisive blow either in the next few months or even in the next two or three years. And amidst all of that, the mission and the effort from the international community and aid workers on the ground is to try and get supplies through. I mean, we've heard about this three-hour corridor that's been opened up. We've also heard that shelling has continued today uh, as that was open. It's, it's really incredibly difficult, isn't it, to get aid through? It really is. It's very complex. It's very complicated. Uh, multiple conflicts are basically have collapsed in one we're not just talking about the conflict between the Assad regime in Syria and the rebels. You're talking about regional wars by proxies. On the one hand, you have Iran and Hezbollah. On the other hand, you have Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. You have Russia and the United States. And this is really what makes this conflict very painful. It's a heartbreak. It's very complex. And despite everything that the United Nations and human rights organizations have done is still a humanitarian catastrophe. It's very depressing talking about all of this, and, and, and as you quite rightly pointed out there, we, I think, in the West find it very difficult to comprehend the various power plays and allegiances that are going on with this in this conflict. I mean, you touched on it earlier. You mentioned two or three years we're going to be in the same situation, but what is there any hope for five years from now of Syria being in a better place, or what's your fear on that? Well, I, I have no idea, as you know. We have been wrong before. When the conflict started more than five years ago, we thought it was going to be a matter of months and a year, five years on and counting. This is a very complex conflict. The head of the CIA, the American uh, I mean, intelligence community, John Brennan, when he was asked a few days ago about Syria, he said he was not sure that unified Syria could be maintained. This is a very alarming development or statement from the head of the U.S. intelligence agencies. Syria really is on the brink. The question is not whether that Assad stays or goes. The question is, can Syria be rescued? Can Syria survive? This is a really lies at the very heart of what the debate that's taken place in Washington, London, and other capitals in the international system. Professor, thank you very much indeed for joining us today to talk about Syria, a very bleak picture. Christopher Lee and Eric Grove are still with me. Gentlemen, I mean, where do we go from here? Because as the professor was explaining very accurately, it's a nightmare situation for the people. Five years this has been going on, and there is no sign of it ending any way soon, if at all, for the foreseeable future, Christopher. Um, Russia uh, is on the side of Sitrep. Sorry, on the side of, uh, of uh, Assad. And he is determined, the Russians are determined, that they will make a success, by which they don't mean a conquering of the rebels, but they'll bring the country to a standstill. Then they can establish what they want. My view, and don't forget we have something outside of this, and that is that the Saudis and the Iranians are fighting uh, mm. a proxy war. Mm. My view of this is that Syria will not exist in the foreseeable future, certainly not as we know it. It'll be split in two. The Syria that we know at the moment, if you look on a map and look at a line which goes vertically, north and south, and takes, say, Damascus as its, as its eastern border, Syria will be a slither of land on the Mediterranean coast, rather like uh, Lebanon is today. That will be the consequence of this. What happens to the rest, whether it becomes part of a caliphate or not, 
too difficult to understand. But don't forget this war that I'm talking mm. about between the Saudis and the Iranians. That is the real war between bet, uh, between Sunnis and Shias. And Eric Grove, that is the, the thing here, isn't it? As, as Christopher said, it's that Sunni-Shia war that's been going on. I mean, perhaps one could look at this as just redrawing the lines that were drawn out by the British and others a century ago. I think it was only this last week the lady who drew the lines on the map that made Iraq, as we now know it, passed away. This is recent countries put together by outsiders finding their own way. Would that be a way of looking at it? Well, in a way, yes. But the problem is that if the country was was divided, and, and I tend to rather agree with what Chris has said, um, uh, there would be terrible ethnic cleansing on both sides. After all, the rebels, who, who seem to be getting quite a good press in the Western press at the moment, they include Jabhat Fateh al-Sham, the read, uh, the the. Uh, of the rebranded Al Nusra Front, who say that they remain committed which to which is Al Qaeda's old mob. Al Qaeda, yes, mm. uh, which uh, is committed to a pretty Islamist um, 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 Islamist agenda. You, one has ISIS too. There seems to be some kind of division am among the rebels. But actually, uh, this war has been kept going from what I've been reading recently, very much by outsiders. Outsiders have played out their interests in Syria, and the Syrian people have paid the price. The only way, and it's a pretty uh, uh, um, extreme, extreme suggestion, sadly, is that the outsiders will decide that it's in their interest to actually have a, have a compromise. But I fear they won't. Gentlemen, for now, on a very difficult and depressing topic, thank you very much indeed. Still to come, an audience with the Chilcot Report. The Iraq Inquiry gets the Edinburgh Fringe treatment. The Inquiry is essential because it will ensure that by learning lessons we strengthen the health of our democracy, our diplomacy and our military. Now, don't forget, you can download this programme as a podcast and listen whenever you like. Use a podcast app on your smartphone and subscribe to BFBS SITREP. The leaders of Russia and Turkey met this week to patch up what was seen to be a damaging quarrel between the two countries. Or was it? Their relations soured last November when Turkey shot down a Russian bomber on the Syrian border. Eric Grove, how important is this relationship? Well, potentially, it is very important. I mean, it's clearly in the interests of both the Russians and the Turks to get on, particularly as the Turks are now feeling that they have quite a lot in common with Mr Putin, as they both seem to be disliked by the West. Uh, I think Erdogan is very angry at the Western attitude to the coup. In a sense, he's every, every reason to be, because I have, I, have, I have grounds for thinking that, in fact, uh, we have been trying to get these, the Turkish armed forces to carry out a coup to overthrow him for, for quite some, some time. So if he thinks the West was involved in this, he might not be 100% wrong. However, given that, um, of course, he's now decapitated his armed forces, the Turkish armed forces. Um, he's in a rather same situation as, say, Stalin was in his relations with Hitler in 1939. And it seemed to me when I was thinking about this earlier today, there are certain similarities here. Two very unpleasant dictators, very authoritarian attitude, who are making a deal in their own interest because of perhaps a passing phase in international politics. We, we've got to pick that up because NATO, uh, Turkey is a NATO member, Christopher. And as, as Eric was saying, armed forces decapitated quite literally by this. It's worrying, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just remind you that, I mean, the idea that uh, Russia and Germany sort of came to be great chums in '39. Just tell me who won the war uh, and were they on the same side? Answered no. Um, the important thing to remember is that NATO is briefing heavily at the moment and saying, listen, whatever you think is going on, uh, Turkey remains an essential part of 
the alliance. Well, it is, isn't it? We and need Inchilic, for example. Uh, well, we need Inchilic, uh, and we not only need Inchilic, we've got our eye on the fact that uh, you, you've got W60 uh, atomic weapons in there that belong to the United States in their bunkers. So, you know, they're keeping that sort of... keeping a lot of attention on that. Mm. The important thing here is this. Turkey and Russia have always been sort of uh, in in the same camp. Well, going back to Ottoman and Tsar times. That's right. And and, and nothing nothing failed that. Mm. Uh, They both have one of the most important interests that you could imagine if you're in NATO and watching for skirmishes, war, whatever, and that is the Black Sea. And with the uh, restoration of uh, of of Crimea, Sevastopol, etc., to the Russians, that becomes even more important. Uh, Turkey, in theory, or as a NATO nation, controls the Bosphorus, and that's the exit from the Black Sea. So, with small things like that, which put it in a NATO context, the other thing to remember is that um, they're both coming out, or they think they're coming out of everybody hates us state, <laughs> uh, and they are both will gather a lot of brownie points from everybody who actually wants to get back in properly, like Russia bringing them back into the council in at NATO headquarters, you know, with a proper uh, unit with, the, with, with desks and mm. offices, etc. Um, when people come out of rounds, they want everybody to be standing there saying, yeah, OK, you're back in the camp. And I think that visit to, uh, that visit to uh, Russia I- I- is part of this. But Russia and Turkey have always spoken, and they can't stop speaking now, however many aircraft you shoot down. Eric, just briefly, what's the situation with Turkey's military post-coup? We know a lot of senior officers, for example, have been arrested and detained. That's right. I'm very concerned, in fact, because I went to Turkey uh, a few months ago and, uh, and uh, I made a lot of acquaintances in the Navy. And I suspect, in fact, I've heard that, one or two, that several of them, in fact, are in, uh, are in rather deep trouble. And it does worry me a lot. It's interesting, actually, that the, uh, that the Turks have been showing off that the pilots who shot down the Russian aircraft are now under arrest. <laughs> which only goes to show that, in fact, it's a pretty dangerous business having done your duty recently in the Turkish armed forces. I worry greatly about Turkey. I worry about Turkey's, both about its its military effectiveness as an alliance, its political reliability as an as an ally, and thirdly, for the poor old Turks, particularly the, the, uh, the secularists in the armed forces, mm. who seem to have suffered a very serious defeat. Okay, well, let's uh, look at a country that many other people are worried about as well. That's Russia. And specifically, what is Russia's military military capable of? A report leaked to the Times this week says NATO countries are struggling to keep up with Russia's digital warfare capability. Well, yesterday I spoke to the former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, General Sir Richard Sheriff. He told me the Russian military has undergone massive modernisation. What we see, I think, is a Russia and Russian armed forces which have really focused on building capability to meet the challenges of of conflict in the 21st century. So any notion, and I think there's still a sense of this in the media, that somehow Russia has not changed since those memories of rusting hulks of submarines outside Murmansk in the early 90s and the implosion of the Russian armed forces at the end of the Cold War. Well, frankly, nothing could be further from the truth. Russia is spending a huge amount of money, 30 trillion rules over the next seven or so, five five years or so to build forces, build up its forces, build up its capabilities. And we should be under no illusions that the Russians are very, very capable. What does NATO and Britain as part of NATO need to do in order to 
counteract this Russian build-up of, of troops, equipment and ideas for war, as it seems. NATO needs to recognise that Russia respects strength and despises weakness. And, and, and in a sense, and I describe it in my recent book, 2017, War with Russia, NATO potentially like a marshmallow. The Russians will continue to probe if they find weakness. So NATO needs to be strong. The alliance needs to demonstrate unequivocally that it is prepared to commit to keep the peace in the way it kept the peace in the Cold War through effective deterrence. And that's nuclear and conventional deterrence. Now, NATO has gone, so, gone some way towards that. It's made a, a reasonable start, but only a reasonable start with the decision to forward base for battalions in the Baltic states and in Poland at the recent Warsaw Pact summit, Warsaw summit rather. Um, but that's a political token. It's not an effective, credible military force. It could uh, four, uh, four battalions um, could be just picked off piecemeal. The NATO chairman or the chairman of the NATO military committee, General Pavel, has estimated that the Russians could be in the Baltic states in two days. And indeed, they have practiced that scenario in a number of recent so-called snap exercises. So NATO needs to ensure that it has a credible military force capable of being more than a tripwire, a speed bump, uh, at the very least, on the, on the territories of the Baltic states and in eastern Poland. But also it needs, of course, effective maritime forces and air forces in the region as well. And the way to prevent war is to demonstrate strength and to deter it. And on top of that, of course, NATO needs to really gener be capable of generating the sort of speedy, very high readiness reserves that that force is going to need to be reinforced with. And at the moment, uh, the, frankly, the NATO vo a very high readiness joint task force falls a long way short of what is needed. General Sir Richard Sheriff there. Christopher, your thoughts on this? Um, let, let's put this in some perspective. Um, the, the chiefs of staff or their, or their acolytes are briefing furiously around Whitehall at the moment um, and will go on doing so for the next couple of months because the ex-Defence Secretary is now Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mr Hammond. And they, there is a strong feeling that in the autumn statement, which the Chancellor will give, that the, uh, the, the military will be a bit vulnerable. Also, Mr Hammond apparently has thoughts that the, uh, apart from that the military doesn't actually need the budget they've got because often they don't spend big chunks of it. And so they're, 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 getting, they're getting twitchy toes about the whole thing. The other thing to remember, of course, if you, if you, um, if you look at what the Russians are doing, uh, strategic rocket forces, which is the most important part of the Russian orbit, mm -hmm. uh, is not being uh, dealt with at the moment. It's not being modernised because it doesn't have to be because it's an uh, upstate all the time. Uh, the border force, which is the second most important, interestingly, where they get the most intelligent uh, ref uh, refugees come along uh, and, and try and beat them, etc. And they've got great fears. Uh, that's not being touched. Mechanised infantry, that's being touched. Um, uh, and under Evgeny Velikov, who started this thing at the end of the 90s, electronics and how to use them not just developing electronics. Mm. Anybody can do that. You can go and buy them. Yes. You get them, you get them on... Off the shelf from off the defense contractor. Shelf. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Uh, but it's how to use this, these systems, and this is what the Russians have developed a lot under the Velikov plan, which is now 15, 20 years old. And they've been fine-tuning that in the Ukraine as well. We've seen them do it. Well, 
Yes, excepting that, uh, this, this sort of idea that was in the Times that, you know, uh, what's happening in Ukraine, they were testing us. You know, look what's happening in the Ukraine. I mean, mm. this was this was this is what uh, uh, General Hoku used to call oh, just rumptious, rumptious, rumptious. And when asked what rumptious meant, he says, "I don't know, but nor do they." Uh, <laughs> in other words, it wasn't uh, it wasn't. But the thing to look for are the political noises that are coming out, accusing Ukrainians of starting to make noises uh, uh, about the Crimea again. That is the sort of pre, uh, pre uh, prelim that some people would recognise. Uh, to start making more incursions into mm. the Baltic states, which was what the general was just talking about. It was absolutely right. Comedians, that's uh, not a word I normally say here, but comedians, writers and activists are among those reading the Chilcot Report at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Uh, it's 2.6 million words. It's into the Iraq War, of course, and it will take two weeks to read. Ali Gibson has been to the performance. The inquiry is essential because it will ensure that by learning lessons we strengthen the health of our democracy, our diplomacy and our military. In a garden shed in the heart of Edinburgh, history is being recorded. Iraq Out and Loud is the reading of the Chilcot Report, word for word, 24-7, until it's completed. Comedian and activist Mark Thomas. What's brilliant about this report, it's the first time the establishment finds what we have all known to be true. So this is now the official writing of history from the establishment point of view. And actually, you know, it's brilliant, this project is brilliant, because what it does is it says we must remember, and what we must do is politics is the art of remembering over forgetting, and we should actually encourage people to be involved in this report and be, remember what happened and make sure it didn't happen again. When Sir John Chilcott published his report in July, it had taken seven years and cost over £10 million. The Iraq inquiry examined the reasons for going to war over 6,000 pages. But its intense detail and huge size means many will never read the report in full, something this collaborative project hopes to address. Producer Bob Slayer. Millions of people that protested against the war, why were they ignored? You would hope that that we've learned from that and it wouldn't happen again. But I'm not confident that wouldn't happen again. You know, the, the environment that we're in politically and socially, I'm not confident it, exactly the same thing couldn't happen again. So I think the more that this can bring people together, maybe, maybe we need to be united, ready for the next time something like this happens. The inquiry took the view that its role was to consider the development and implementation of government policy, rather than to examine operational decisions and actions affecting individual cases. A host of comedians, activists and members of the public will take this shed to read the full report of the Iraq inquiry. And at an average speed of 120 words a minute, it will probably take until the end of the Edinburgh Fringe to see it finished. Stand-up comedian Nish Kumar is one of the readers. Part of the fun of a festival like this is that areas like comedy and drama and even, you know, reportage, I guess, which is kind of what this is, get to intermingle and play with each other. You know, we live in kind of isolated communities normally, and this is a really good opportunity to mix things up. This is the start of an epic undertaking by all those involved in Iraq out and loud. But through it, the readers hope to offer some new insight and open up the debate about the war to a much wider audience. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Edinburgh. Eric, you were listening to that. Your thoughts on it briefly? Well, well I'm glad that the 
that the, the, the um, report is getting publicity. I mean, I'm not sure how many people will listen to it from beginning to end, but I must admit, from what I've seen in it, it is extremely interesting, and it tells you a great deal. And the more publicity that people... Well, the, the more access that people get to it, the better it will be. I think it is one of the better reports. It isn't the cover-up that people uh, might have expected. But I think it's, uh, you know, the more the people hear it and the more and the more that people think about it, the better it will be. Well, it's certainly an innovative way of getting the message out there. But that is what Edinburgh is all about. You do get all sorts of things going on. I suppose this fits in quite nicely with it. Professor Eric Gray, thank you ever so much again for joining us once more here on SITREP. Now, finally, Christopher Lee, uh, we need really to talk about uh, the passing uh, of a man um, that many of us will know of, certainly. The Duke of Westminster died this week at the age of 64. He was uh, in the TA for more than 40 years and right up at the top of the TA at the end there. Yes, um, was. Um, Duke of uh, Westminster, the richest man in, uh, in the United Kingdom, nine billion, something like that. Mm. Uh, it, it, the, the new Duke is worth about a, a third of the defence budget, just out of thought. But, yes, an important thing about um, uh, the Duke that's just died, he joined as a trooper in, in the TA, and it suited him. Mm. He said you could start and you were valued for what you could do rather than what you were worth. He was the first peacetime TA soldier to become a general... And every time he went to visit the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, paid his own way. Hmm. That sort of sums him up, really. It does, doesn't it? Christopher, been really good again, as ever. Thank you very much indeed for being here once more on SITREP and that is all we have time for this week thank you to all of the guests we've had on and do tell us what you think you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode subscribe to our podcast I'll be back again next week do join me if you can for now though from me and Christopher goodbye The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.